Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI 99.5. We are a socialist radio show and podcast for members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 80,000 members nationwide. And New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by its 7,000 members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism here in all five boroughs. My name is Desiree Joy Frias. I use she, her pronouns. I'm on the organizing committee for the Bronx Upper Manhattan branch. And lately I've been doing mutual aid food rescue with my comrades here in my hometown of the South Bronx. Welcome to finals week at Revolutions Per Minute. Inspired by the developing tuition strike at Columbia Barnard and other actions around the country, we're focusing on workers and students organizing on campus. Our live guest, David Duhalde, is, will speak on the history of the Young Democratic Socialists of America, DSA's campus-oriented arm and a crucial part of our diverse socialist movement. We'll also hear from Michelle of CUNY adjuncts on their struggle against austerity for a human-centered approach to graduate labor. Finally, farmers' protests have made global headlines as millions of workers fight back against neoliberalism in India. We'll close out our show tonight with a brief interview with Jagpreet of, Jeans, of Queen's DSA on these massive protests and the governmental policies that provoke them. But first, the headlines with Simone Norman. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that New York will get 170,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine on December 15th. These initial doses will go to nursing home residents and staff, with subsequent doses going to other healthcare professionals. Mayor Bill de Blasio's administration is making a late push for universal broadband internet, a goal it originally announced in 2014. The MTA is speculating that implementation of congestion pricing, which would bring in much-needed revenue for the agency, could be delayed until 2023. Despite a commitment to cut the city's greenhouse gas emissions by 30% by 2030, New York City's emissions increased between 2017 and 2019. City and state New York offered a primer on NYC DSA given the seismic shift the group has caused in New York politics. A CNBC profile of incoming State Assembly member Ferris of Front Forest of District 57 in central Brooklyn emphasized the growing power of the tenants movement in the city. New York parole boards are issuing denials at a slightly higher rate than a year ago, even as COVID-19 makes reducing the prison population a public health priority. 
Sections of Coney Island, Brighton Beach, Gravesend, Gowanus, Red Hook, Marine Park, Canarsie, and all of northern Brooklyn's coastline will flood at least once a year by 2050 because of rising sea levels, a new study finds. Without massive federal funding, mass transit systems across the U.S. face severe service cuts. Denser cities like New York will be disproportionately impacted. And in election news, city residents cast a record-breaking number of absentee ballots in this year's presidential election, but overall turnout remained roughly similar to 2016 turnout at about 55%. With the city's votes finally counted, results show President Trump made small gains in the five boroughs, even as he lost ground relative to 2016 across the state as a whole. The Working Families Party also made significant gains. Democratic State Senator John Mannion of District 50 in Syracuse declared victory over his opponent after absentee counts pulled him ahead, likely giving Democrats a final total of 43 members in the state Senate, one more than the number needed for a supermajority. Brooklyner interviewed DSA-endorsed city council candidate Brandon West about his run in District 39 of Park Slope. Andy Levin explored the campaign for a socialist caucus in the city council for In These Times. Former Wall Street executive Ray McGuire announced his campaign for mayor in a video narrated by filmmaker Spike Lee. And finally, the city's Board of Elections is still looking for a private firm whose software can implement ranked choice voting in next year's primary elections. The first ranked choice election, the special election in Queens to fill Donovan Richards' seat in the council, is less than two months away. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group. It covers local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So today we have a friend of mine, a comrade of mine, David Dualde, longtime DSA member, former political director of Our Revolution, and DSA staff member, including youth organizer, working on a history of why DSA. David has been a part of DSA since before you knew it. I, I, I guarantee it. So, uh, David, what brought you to DSA? When did you come to our organization? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I would say, uh, broadly, I started almost from birth. Um, my parents, who are both DSA members today um, and were off and on uh, before uh, uh, the current times, uh, met through you know the struggle to help return Chile to a democracy after the overthrow of the Democratic Socialist President Salvador Allende. So it's always nice to hear El Pueblo Unido uh, sung by Singing Solidarity for us. Um, and so my folks were involved in the labor movement, and that also had a huge impact on my activist and career trajectory, you know, for many years, including today as a union member. Uh, but what brought me into the socialist movement was them, but also little things that I remember from my childhood. Like my father had uh, this little pennant from his youth section, which was called uh, the Radical Revolutionary Youth at the time, that had a little fist in rows um, <laughs> that I remembered uh, very distinctly. And that was because it was... Uh, a member of the International Union of Socialist Youth, like YDSA once was. And so I grew up, you know, knowing that socialist youth organizing was a global phenomenon. So uh, after doing some like soul searching and political research uh, when I was young, I decided to uh, join a socialist organization and I made that organization DSA when I was 19, uh, back in 2003, if you can believe it, uh, back then. And so I got uh, directly involved 
with the Young Democratic Socialists, uh, which was the name of YDSA at the time at my college campus, uh, where I was involved a lot with like anti-sweatshop organizing, which is a really uh, central movement um, in student politics at the time. And of course, um, we were involved also in like anti-war work, uh, which was a huge driver, um, which I'll talk a little bit later on uh, in DSA and YDS's work in coalitions um, during the Bush administration. So, you know, through this period, I made lots of lifelong friends, like such as Maria Savart, <laughs> who's now the national director of DSA, but she was also once uh, the YDS co-chair uh, when I was a student. And so from there, you know, I stayed involved uh, with the movement. Um, I was lucky enough to, after I graduated college, to be hired as the youth organizer uh, where I focused a lot of my energy on like non-traditional uh, left campuses like state universities and smaller schools across the country to kind of build out the organization. And I think that kind of reflected, to answer your question about like the social forces at the time, reflected that the left was very weak relatively, not only to today, but just in U.S. history. And we needed to kind of look for leftists where you might not find them and people who kind of would have been interested in the movement and I think that kind of foundation has is not necessarily the organizing strategy today. And I think we it's interesting to see how that's changed. Why DSA has really gone from I'll say four chapters literally when I started as the youth organizer to 130 today, just of the YDSA chapters. And so I think it's incredible, and I look forward to discussing that more with you all about how that's changed. Yeah, and I mean that that growth is is due to volunteer organizers, and then you know sometimes paid organizers like yourself. Um, and and tell me a little bit more on on the growth of of YDSA. So you've been putting together a history of YDSA. Uh, how have you seen that growth uh, become exponential? I think there's a couple of different factors you can look at that my research uh, showed. So. Historically, there are competitors to YDSA. So we'll talk about the Sanders movement too, but I also think it's important that the listeners know that when I was a student organizer and through much of the youth section's history, as it's formerly called in the, in the DSA constitution, there were groups like the International Socialist Organization, there were United Students Against Sweatshops, there was the United States Student Association. Um, two of those three groups don't even exist anymore. Um, and so YDSA has kind of filled uh, a gap, you know, where student organizing happened. And part of that is also not just like being lucky, it's also creating opportunities. And so an example of that was that started when I, in 2016, and was really done in 2020, was working with the student for Bernie chapters and made turning them into YDSA chapters, which was very strategic. And, and so just taking advantage of those moments, uh, I think it's really important that people study um, that it's not just that Bernie Sanders happened and YDSA grew. That's part of the story. But I think really good strategic organizing is the other half, if not greater half. Yeah. And, and you know, to recenter about CUNY, uh, let's go to... Uh, to Jack Devine, who's going to talk to us about the modern-day student struggle at CUNY and the adjuncts that are that are fighting for their rights on their campuses. So thanks, uh, David. We're going to talk with you more about the history of YDSA um, here on Revolutions Per Minute, WBAI 99.5 FM. 
Yo, it's good New York. This is Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and I am here with Michelle Gaspari, a doctoral student at the CUNY Grad Center, an adjunct professor at Baruch, and a labor organizer with the PSC-affiliated CUNY Adjunct Project. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here and to be talking about this. Um, so... I just want to clarify, I'm she, her pronouns, um, and the CUNY Adjunct Project is PSC affiliated, but we're not like, we work in tandem on certain certain issues, but not everything. So that's just a heads up and away we go, I guess. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right. It's uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you here that is uh, hitting on an issue that is very close to home. I mean, I, I care a lot about everything we discuss here on the radio show, but this one affects me personally as a also a doctoral candidate at the CUNY Grad Center. So I've been looking forward to having this interview for a while, and um, we're going to keep our eyes on this struggle going forward. So, uh, Michelle, what is the fight for full funding at CUNY? Uh, what, what has emerged as the central demand uh, during this struggle recently, and how would you assess the current state of the fight? All right. So I'm glad you said it affects you personally. It affects me personally, too. Um, and that's how I got engaged in this work on full funding at CUNY. And um, the question's big. So the fight for full and fair funding, this began in 2018 at the Graduate Center, and it developed as a working group under the organization that I represent, which is the CUNY Adjunct Project. And this full and fair funding group targets the austerity that we see in PhD admissions packages at the Graduate Center CUNY. Um, and this is the only doctoral degree granting institution in the CUNY system. And it might sound kind of niche, the funding status of PhD students at one of CUNY schools and of its 25 campuses, but it actually affects the entire CUNY system. And it's representative of a broader sort of austerity crisis in academia that a lot of our students are not fully funded, right? Um, and first off, this is because graduate student labor makes up a lot of the part-time faculty throughout the CUNY campuses. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm an adjunct at Baruch as well as a student. So there's a lot of crossover. Um, and these underfunded students are competing over these poorly compensated adjunct jobs and other sort of fleeting gig work and fellowships. So I have friends who are you know, doing catering work while they're writing up their dissertations, which is like respect to all work, but it's low paying work, right? And it's just to get your, your um, academic your academic endeavors done. So rather than the standard compensation of a funding package that most doctoral students in the U.S. are receiving, um, these underfunded students are splitting their time between multiple low-wage um, endeavors, and, and they're not focusing on their research and their teaching. Um, and this isn't only an issue for funding, lack of funding, but it's also for lack of health insurance. Um, and that lack of health insurance is kind of where we're really putting our weight behind right now. Um, and that's that within this two-tiered system, tuition-only students who don't have fellowships, don't have funding packages, unlike their fully funded counterparts, they're not provided the union-represented employment. So they have no guaranteed access to the state health insurance plan that we usually get through CUNY, right? And students end up taking on these precarious jobs, these adjunct jobs qualify for health insurance, and they're anxiously planning every semester that they might lose both their job and their health insurance. Um, and especially with the 
present global health crisis, um, the second wave of COVID coming up and upon us, it shows the importance of this structurally guaranteed and universal access to health insurance. Um, and it was actually written into our contract that we agreed on in December of last year. So, so a year ago, um, by our union, the PSC, CUNY management said that they're going to set aside $700,000 on a rolling basis. So every year this money will renew. Um, to enable these tuition-only students to get health insurance. Uh, and somehow, a year later, it has not been implemented. Um, CUNY management is continuing to stall. There have been no changes in the access to health insurance at the Graduate Center. Myself and many of my colleagues are fearing every semester uh, for our health insurance coverage. And it's just really draining, and it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of violent, right? It's violent of CUNY to put us in this danger when management has agreed to uh, a contract that allocates money to be used for NYSHIP health insurance. So despite the urgency of the pandemic, we see a refusal of all of the union's proposals to institute this NYSHIP, um, which would come with some employment, some funding as well, right? Um, so the current status of that struggle, to answer your final question on that note, is that it's, it's still a struggle. We have a petition circulating. Uh, the CUNY community is signing it. We have about 400 signatures thus far. We're working on more visibility in our campaign. Being on your show is a part of that. Um, and the really kind of heart-wrenching part of this is that this open letter is is bringing out testimonials, right? And and they're just about as heartbreaking as you would imagine uninsured folks uh, during a pandemic dealing with this would be. So, yeah. <laughs> I think you just hit on a, a number of crucial points. And while, as you're saying at first, it may seem like a, a niche, small struggle thinking about uh, this uh, number of uh, doctoral students who don't have access to healthcare, it's reflective of a lot of other um, trends, both here in New York in terms of austerity of public institutions, as well as the university system across the country where uh, yeah. funds are getting cut. There's decrease in tenure positions. Uh, so there's kind of, and, and then the general health crisis, there's, I mean, there's broader fights for healthcare for all that are happening right now. And this is, seems to be kind of one front uh, within a particular uh, labor union about um, you know, spreading that as a right to more and more people. So while it's um, just one uh, fracture of the the uh, the very large New York working class, I think it's a, a an important front within that broader struggle. And so you were already kind of hinting at some of these aspects, but just want to uh, highlight, like, in what ways does uh, the need uh, to fight for healthcare coverage? kind of reveal the precarity of graduate workers at CUNY um, and maybe in just public universities as a whole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as you say, right, it's a struggle about kind of affirming life, affirming learning, affirming research in a terrain of increasing defunding of higher education in the public university. So, um, you know, with cuts to the public institutions broadly, and then and then the negligent use of the funding when it does come to CUNY within the institution itself. So we see like the hiring of extra deans rather than the fixing of like broken toilets at Hunter College. I, we see we see this coming up again and again, where uh, six figure salaries are uh, take precedent over you know the needs of CUNY's student body, um, and we see doctoral students scrounging over the most basic of asks, which is give us health insurance that you said you would in December. Um, and it's really hard to encourage folks to pursue their research interests and to be curious minds, I think, when they can't do that without facing 
you know, poverty, lack of benefits. Um, and it's especially disconcerting that the programs that end up facing this austerity the most are the humanities, the social sciences. These are, you know, our women and gender studies programs, our sociology programs, our African-American studies programs, our critical theory programs. Um, and these are the programs that are dealing with the questions of inequality and social change we're talking about right now. So when grad students working on these issues cannot do so freely, cannot get a living wage for it, um, or first into this kind of precarity. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I, I work three adjunct jobs. I take a full-time course load. Um, and still I worry every semester that my adjunct jobs will be cut, right? Um, so yeah, we can't get a living wage and a health insurance for these endeavors, for these scholarly endeavors, for kind of uh, learning and teaching. We, we kind of all lose, I think, as a society we lose. Yeah, I think it's reflective of kind of the disturbing priorities that... Um our society currently has where things that should be seen as crucial for everyone and the improvement of all people in our society, healthcare, education, um, are taken to the back burner or just housing uh, everyone, but the interest of administrators or real estate capital or spending uh, gobs of the amount of money to give the, the police their own uh, military equipment, but uh, we can't seem to provide healthcare for um, researchers, it kind of, I, it, I think this kind of just, uh, really shows the way that, um, how we are investing in things, um, in our society is, is pretty disturbing and it's, uh, setting us in a bad directory. So this fight, uh, is so related to other struggles that are happening in this city. So like, why is this struggle for healthcare coverage? Uh, such a critical front um, in the long-term struggle of building worker power at CUNY, um, because in, in CUNY is such a crucial institution, um, I think, for workers in the city as a whole as well. Yeah, I mean, CUNY is CUNY is a wonderful institution. It's a working class institution. I love teaching my students. I love the diversity that we get in the classroom. I love the diversity that we get at CUNY. Um, and the worker power at CUNY needs to kind of reflect that diversity, too. And I think what we're seeing recently um, in the union struggles to date has been a little bit disappointing. So it, it, it comes to me like, how is it that a year later in the middle of a pandemic, almost a million dollars that were meant to ensure doctoral students is sitting unused. How is it that our management at CUNY can ignore the contract and that it signed with our union a year ago? And it's because they're not afraid enough of our union, to put it very bluntly. I mean, keeping true on contract stipulations is kind of the minimum when it comes to a, a union relationship. And as CUNY management continues to end up stalling on this and allows adjunct jobs to be cut left and right in the meantime and course loads to increase, all of these things that PSC is talking about, um, which is our union, PSC, <laughs> we see that all of our struggles end up being intertwined in this broader scope, scope of like need for strong representation of our interests through worker power. Um, you know, we see that health isn't just about health care. It's about preventative access to nutritional food. It's about not working through the night regularly to keep yourself housed with three jobs. So the fight for funding of doctoral students and the healthcare of doctoral students kind of harmonizes with this fight for fair wages for adjunct faculty at CUNY, which is also a major, major issue in building worker power within CUNY itself through the PSC. Um, so without this funding, you know, students who are working adjunct jobs, you know, myself included, you make about 
$3,400 per semester per class, which means that when I teach three classes a semester, which is truly the equivalent of a full-time job for two semesters of the year, I make a cumulative about 20000 a year. Um, and the living wage in New York City is $31,200. So we're, we see where we're putting kind of our priorities as far as funding our professors, the people who are um, teaching in, in higher education. Um, so I think something we need really badly at CUNY is a union that has the power to change this pay of adjunct labor, um, the prioritization of the health and well-being of graduate students. And it's a New York City issue and it's a U.S. issue. CUNY is an institution, as you said, that has nourished so many kind of revolutionary minds and letting that tradition die because of budget cuts and, and lack of sort of union militancy would be a really a real shame in my opinion. Yeah, that the last point that you've been harping on this uh, militancy for the union is something that is is not isolated to PSC um, and is, uh, I think, a huge uh, aspect of struggle that's happening in the educational sector at large here in New York City, where there's a massive divide between the uh, willingness to fight among leadership and the more organized rank and file. So this is something that I would I'd love to continue to explore going forward, the, uh, the general crisis of austerity at CUNY, the various struggles. But this seems to be a, a really important fight that could help drive home and push forward the broader goal for a, a militant union that can transform CUNY into the working class institution that it's supposed to be. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any final words you want to uh, share with our listeners, we're happy to hear. Oh, of course. Thank you so much, Jack. And thank you, listeners. It was so nice to be able to talk to you about this issue. Um, CUNY is near and dear to me. I know it's near and dear to Jack. And I, I'm excited to move forward in this conversation uh, in whatever way we do, Jack. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about student organizing. We're halfway through the show, so it's that time. I want you to call in and talk to us. Please call us at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. But first, I want to talk about our fundraiser for WBAI. During this difficult season, it's so crucial that we have an independent platform like WBAI to share the stories of people fighting on the ground. Farmers, student organizers, health workers. To keep Revolutions Per Minute and your other favorite shows in the air, we need you to give. Become a BAI buddy and set up a monthly recurring donation today so that the stories of our neighbors fighting for equality have a space on the airwaves. To give to the station, please call 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Or go to WBAI.org to give. Thank you. So let's see, uh, do we have any calls? No, we do not at this moment. 
Okay, great. Wait, so, here comes one now. Haha. WBAI, you're on the air. All right. I was listening to the last um, speaker, the, the guest, and wondering uh, whether or not any of the students are eligible for New York State of Health. I uh, graduated from school a year ago, and I'm still under the poverty line. And I just went to New York State of Health, I think it's .com, and entered my salary. And they said, okay, you're eligible for any, pick whichever, you know, uh, insurance coverage plan you want, Fidelis, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Emblem, blah, blah, blah. And you get to see what they offer. And I picked one, and I pay $31.09 a month and get free medication, free eyeglasses, free emergency room care, free doctor visits. One dollar copay for prescriptions. Um, so I I wonder if you know, as long as would I think New York State of Health is based on your salary. So whatever they earn, they would pay some percentage, some ratio of. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that resource. Uh, New York State of Health is a great resource, and if I'm not wrong, I think there is an open enrollment period now. But I think a big issue is uh, with our entire healthcare system is that a lot of people are ineligible for so many reasons. Um, and and you know if if they're under the age of 27, if they're still on their parents' insurance, um, they may not be able to access that state marketplace. Um, and I think that it really speaks to, to, to why we need Medicare for all. We need to ensure that everyone has access to that great health care you were just talking about um, with $1 copays and eyeglasses. I mean, you know, a lot of people would, you know, really benefit from having that. Um, so thank you for sharing that resource. And uh, sure. we have another caller. Hey, hello. Go ahead. Yeah, hello. Go right ahead. Is someone on the other line other than yourself? Yes, I'm here. You're speaking to Revolutions Per Minute, WBAI. Okay. Yes, I was just listening to that young lady from CUNY regarding to the adjunct situation. And uh, can you hear me okay? Yep, we can hear you great. Okay. What I do not want to do is to in any way make a comment that could be embarrassing to the young lady since the general public is listening to the call. I thought this would be a one-on-one -on -one connection. I'm more than happy to give my name and phone number. I think her message is very important. I think it was very well presented. But there's one thing that she does that I think, at least from an older point of view, undercuts her legitimacy, and that is the tendency to sort of semi-laugh a bit as she's talking. And I think... As I say, she's intelligent, she's got very good information, she's got a very sound way of talking, but when she um, consciously or subconsciously so, laughs, so thank you for your feedback on, on her way of speaking. You know, I think as a professor, I think she can handle herself perfectly fine. And, I, and, and you know, I appreciate your feedback, but I think that we were really looking for questions more substantive about the material since regardless of the way she's speaking, she's, uh, you know, she's suffering. And, and, and all of our CUNY professors and public school professors across the city are, are suffering. And I think that uh, that's really the substantive issue at hand, uh, not necessarily how the, the story is being uh, transmitted. Um, so we're going to go back to David Dualde. 
longtime DSA member, former DSA staffer, uh, former organizer with Our Revolution, uh, sorry, political director of Our Revolution. And we're going to talk about YDSA. So why are you making a history of YDSA? And what is the significance of YDSA uh, to DSA's work and the left more broadly? Sure. Um, so as someone I mentioned in the earlier section um, who has had the privilege, you know, and uh, the benefit to have been in the organization now for almost two decades, which is like surreal to me because <laughs> uh, I started so young, um, that I've seen the good and the bad, and I've seen how the organization has changed. And I think that it's really important to study history, not just because it's an interesting subject, if, even if uh, you are a leftist, but it's because it actually informs you know, the decisions that we'll make as an organization. So I'm specifically talking about DSA in the future. And that there, I just saw this uh, gap, I would say, in the study of DSA's history when I would see political education or other efforts. And I just wanted to recognize that, you know, it's incumbent on people such as myself to you know, make that information accessible and not just um, assume that people can learn on their own. So there was an excellent opportunity that I took uh, advantage of was that uh, a comrade, uh, Paul, Paul Buell, uh, who wrote a book with his uh, partner, Mary Jo Buell. Um, it's called the Encyclopedia of the American Left that I read in high school. Just, they're doing a second edition. And so they invited me because of my history to do the entry on the DSAU section, which wasn't included. Um, in the first edition. So the DSA Fund, which is the sister nonprofit to us, um, gave a grant to hire a research assistant. And we did like 200 interviews of uh, U-section alumni, so YDSA members from the 70s on, uh, about their experiences. And it was, and to, so to answer the second part of your question, what was really fascinating was just to see through these stories, and many I hadn't heard, though I knew generally, was like how YDS was really involved. YDSA was really involved in every aspect of the left in the past 40 years. So if you, you're talking about like the anti-draft movement, uh, especially around the war in Afghanistan, which it didn't know existed, but uh, to the anti-apartheid movement uh, and global solidarity, as we were talking about my father's country in Chile, it was like with El Salvador, with Nicaragua, lots of these socialist uh, movements, you know, DSA and the U section were supporting solidarity. And as you kind of gradually moved on, you saw like the beginnings of like an anti-sweatshop movement um, and work around the prison industrial complex, which I think is a real harbinger, which I'll maybe talk about later in our abolition work that are all being done by the youth section in the 90s. And then work around the anti-war, especially in New York because of the United for Peace and Justice and that mass rallies happened here and the headquarters are here. Um, and so, and I also think it's really fascinating to see, you know, how these reflect the changes in the movement. So, for example, just one concrete instance is like today, DSA and YDSA, you know, have have voted to have like a rank and file orientation. So it's like encouraging people to become union members. Uh, when I was a student, and well before the the strategy was like be good with labor leadership, become a staffer, you know, show up to picket lines. And that, and so those changes are. You see those how those changes happen both in DSA and YDS, and how sometimes one leads, sometimes one follows. And 
So it's not exactly a perfect symmetry, but it, it, the movements are reflected in what's going on. And so I'll stop there, but I think it's like a really fascinating history and I'm really glad we wrote it down. Yeah, and you know, uh, my mom, Marlene Cintron, was a young lord in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, it, it can be very frustrating as an organizer to see that I'm out here fighting for a lot of the same things that they were um, back then, you know, racial equality. Uh, and uh, so what are some of the themes that you've seen people organizing in the past and, and today? Sure. So I think our research kind of came up on four concrete themes. So it's like a perfect question to ask. Um, and then I'll get more into details about what I think would be like things that are kind of where history repeats itself in or at least rhymes. So one is that, as I mentioned, that labor activism is always central. That changes. But so you have, for example, supporting unions like in Solidarity Day. So that's uh, when Reagan fires the air traffic controllers and DSA plays a role in organizing uh, a rally with uh, other major unions to kind of show labor strength. It didn't really work out, <laughs> um, but but um, but it happens. Uh, so broadly, DSA fills a role. And I think what has always been important is that we have to remember, especially as union density declines in this country, you, young Democratic Social America is actually a way a lot of people learn about the labor movement because their parents aren't union members or they're not like around the, the labor movement. And this is how they discover why unions matter. And that's why a lot of folks do join and become, whether it's rank and file or they become like a, a union staffer, like they get it through YDSA. Um, another aspect is that, uh, which I kind of, I was alluding to earlier, is like the debates within YDSA reflect the movement in general. So if you want to talk about, you know, uh, racial justice, uh, listening to feminism, having, seeing the organization go from like, you don't need gender quotas to having gender quotas. Do we get rid of them because that's tokenism? These are debates that YDSA has, you know, that reflect like broadly what's changing um, and how we, diff and how the social justice movements, you know, want to address different forms of oppression that are just centrally based in class. And so this fascinating dynamic I learned about in the research, which I didn't know about, was there were the reds and the greens. And so when you hear that, you usually think about environmentalists and Marxists. And no, no, it was the people who, what, the greens were actually more people who want to focus on sent, on the you know other forms of oppression and making sure that was really important. The reds were people who were like, you know, we, DSA should focus mostly on class. Not exactly like what we think about in today's debates, but definitely a harbinger. And one of the funny things, too, is someone who was a green is now the secretary treasurer of one of the major labor unions in this country. So, like, you know, just because someone said one thing, then, you know, their career trajectories there. And then the other just two quick things is like, I would say is YDSA size, which we'll get into, is like not always correlated by things in its control. So as I mentioned earlier, sometimes history just happens. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, DSA and YDS, they, they don't grow together. You know, that was really interesting, that sometimes YDS can be bigger, DSA can be smaller, and vice versa. And those are kind of some of the major things. So you mentioned Maria Savart earlier, the national director of mm -hmm. DSA, and uh, how she was in YDSA beforehand. Were mm -hmm. there any other names that came up that you were surprised to see, or uh, names that our listeners may have, have heard of before? Yeah, there was a couple, definitely a few people you were always surprised to see. So like Amber Frost, let's not forget, was in my, uh, was in YDSA with me. Um, so she's definitely someone people know. Um, and so she was uh, on the national leadership when I was there. There was also uh, several people that I was mentioning the trade unionists. So like Jerry Hudson, who comes out of 1199 SEIU um, in New York, is the secretary treasurer 
of SEIU now nationally. And Elisa McBride is the secretary of me. So these are like major labor leaders who came off um, from the movement. And so there were just lots of also just but people you definitely know. And so I would say like, you know, there's no Jacobin without YDSA. So, you know, that Boscar was my intern, you know, I'm not claiming credit, but like he was my intern and then he meets Peter Fraze and he meets some other people and they start and they start editing the activist, which was the blog that becomes and then they're like, let's take it to another level. So there's all these. And so the role is like a very much an incubator role. So you so you might not know all the celebrities names that might not be left celebrities, but they go on to do projects like the prison moratorium project. They create these things in YDSA. And the, the only thing I'd add there, which is, is that what's interesting is sometimes it's like what DSA has to figure out and why DSA has to figure out too, is like, what's the balance between being an incubator and letting your baby go? <laughs> and what, how much do you want to hold to yourself? And that there's no perfect answer to that. And I, but that was the one of the fascinating things we found that like the United Students Against Sweatshops came out of YDSA, you know, Machia del Artores um, in Mexico, you know, and, but the, that, that need, the unions were going to fund something that was not going to be an explicit DSA project. And so for new activists who are hearing DSA, uh, they've heard of DSA, some of their friends have joined, what do you, what do you recommend for them? How should they get involved? So I recommend getting involved, you know, directly in your chapter. And I think that, you know, there's a real way that that ends up influencing national politics and history. And I think like, so looking from a New York perspective, you know, we really relied on the national office, the headquarters to provide, um, you know, support. So many of the conferences were here. My first was at the CUNY Graduate Center, which that's why it was so <laughs> nice to hear the, 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 the speaker. And that there's a real void, as I mentioned earlier, because a lot of the national groups have disappeared. So it falls onto the youth group, the youth section, YDSA, to do real work that's advancing material interest of students. So Today, you know, we have the Columbia Barnard students leading this historic uh, tuition that's strike that's getting national attention with 2,500 students. But don't forget also nationally, you know, YDSA is pushing on student debt, pushing on COVID relief. And these are like, you know, we're socialists and people, you know, we're revolutionaries. But these are very practical federal programs that we're looking for that because the other student movements are weaker or don't exist, it's really incumbent on us. So that's why it's really important to get involved locally, but because it, it does actually have national and federal implications to the work you're doing. And that student strike in Columbia will inspire others and will create pressure, you know, to resolve this issue. So as organizers, we're always learning as we go, uh, walking and talking at the same time. Uh, but what are some best practices that you've found uh, in, in, in your history writing that you think uh, we should really take with us to the next 50 years of YDSA work? Uh, that's a great question. So I'm writing a, an article in the Democratic Left coming out soon, where I just think it's intergenerational work is really important. Like your mother was a young lord, my parents were solidarity activists. You know, I think there's, people have to listen and learn and just ask questions um, about where the movement has gone. And I think that the balance is not just assuming that the leaders, our elders know everything and not assuming that they know nothing. Um, and that one of the reasons I do this do this history is that I want people to learn from the mistakes. And I think that, you know, I wrote an article, now I, I, more of an obituary for David Dinkins and Jacobin, where I talked about, he's a great guy, and I talked about what didn't go well for DSA. He was a DSA member. People don't know that. You know, why didn't, so now we have this great slate, but it's not like we didn't do electoral politics in New York before, and why did it fizzle out? So I really do want to, um, uh, you know, 
have people have more of these history lessons. So I think that it's important to read books, not just about, you know, histories of other organizations, even in the United States or abroad, but read our own histories. And I'm hoping that people will be able to send out the history I've written and that people will start having more of what we call socialism across generations. This is what I'll end on, which we did at the convention where you have, you know, just do an open event. There's with like someone from every five-year period from your chapter and have them talk about what how they became a socialist. And that's how it, it gets people to open up because we get so tied with the work that we forget like what actually brought you into the movement. Like my story is very nice for me. It always drives me, but you know, I'm not do working on Chile right now. <laughs> you know, it's not what actually keeps me day to day. I'm doing a lot of other work. So I just want people to talk to each other um, and really try to do history lessons. And I think that's really critical to making actually a sustainable movement more than anything else. Well, I'm a better organizer since I started talking to you six months oh, ago. And I, I mean it, you know, um, and, and I'm so thankful for the relationships and connections that I've been, built through my work in DSA. Um, thanks to organizers like you who not only write the history books, but keep the work going. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, this was really a blessing to be here. Great. So now we're going to go back to our listening audience again for live questions on the air. Uh, so please call us at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. So give us a call. Uh, let's talk about student organizing. Let's talk about the adjunct professors that are fighting for their rights. I mean, $20,000 uh, a year is not livable anywhere <laughs> in the United States. Um, so uh, since we don't have any calls yet, uh, any funny moments or surprising moments in your in your history writing, David? Um, I think the funniest thing for me was just seeing how it's not really it's both funny and touching. It's like how people like who hadn't talked about this like found like just sent me these amazing pictures, which of course we can't do on the radio, but there's like. This um, this funny picture of like Michael Harrington, who was one of the founders of DSA, you know, wearing this like jumbo sized uh, jump, uh, justice for janitors T-shirt just as the campaign was getting started. And like and so and that was like a huge campaign. I mean, he passes away just as it goes. And you see these like very touching moments where people are just like coincidentally in history, you know, around these amazing um, instances. And so um and so I feel that, you know, you can't forget, like, people were really just like, you know, sometimes like making their own history. And before we had social media like this, like some of these people were like icons to folks that you just couldn't meet. So you went to the conference. So you, and now we just like tweet at people all the time. But like, so there was like this very touching story. It's not so funny, but it's like where this guy talks about how he, um, you know, members getting Irving Howe, uh, who was a, a DSA founder, uh, later started Descent Magazine, his book for his bar mitzvah. And then like a few years later, he's at this meeting with him. And it was like, you know, meeting like a prophet, you know, that you're, you read about at like Hebrew school. Um, and so those were like really touching moments. And I think that like, as I was saying earlier too, like, um, I don't think a lot of folks realize and it makes sense, which is why we're um, writing this is that a lot of great things came out of YDSA. And so like the funny moment here is this was like the prison moratorium project, 
which DSA got a grant to do to like get people to divest, uh, especially like corporations to divest from uh, to get you know, to get students to divest their schools to divest from corporations that were doing business with prisons, especially like Sodexo, like someone who could like both do catering for was that there was this concert with like Wu Tang uh, like side gigs and and uh, some of the members of the Beastie Boys. And and so the Democratic left has this great article where they're like, there's this great concert. And then the, when they found out when we did the interviews, it was a great concert, but it's because the DJ, but the DJ skipped out and the, and the youth organizer had to do all the music live. So you're trying to imagine all these rappers. It's like, you know, before MTV Unplugged, like <laughs> doing like rapping to like the bass. And so that's, those are cute stories. Yeah. Thanks for that story. We have a caller. Uh, caller, you're on live with WBAI 99.5. Hi, um, I called a second ago about insurance, but I love this conversation and I have a new question. Um, what you were saying before, have conversations, you know, get involved, start talking to people. Where I didn't even know democratic socialism existed. I am so happy I found this show. Where can we go to get involved in conversations? How do we, I mean, start having these conversations with other people? Uh, where do I start, <clears throat> you know? Yeah, so uh, your first step is to find your local branch. So depending what borough you live in, you have a group of socialists somewhere meeting on the internet, organizing in your neighborhood. And the way you're going to find them is to go to socialists.nyc. Again, that website is socialists, plural, dot nyc and in fact there is a new member orientation this saturday so if you go to that website you can sign up for that new member orientation and digitally meet other new people who are also uh you know socialist curious and uh <laughs> excited to get involved in the fight so I am looking forward to hopefully seeing you, caller, at my branch meeting if you end up being in the best branch, which is Bronx, Upper Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much, for uh, David, for speaking with us. Now we're going to shift to farmer protests uh, in India. So massive protests in India have caught the world's attention this week. But the background and significance of these protests is not well understood to many in the United States. To better understand this international news, uh, we spoke with our comrade, Jagpreet Singh of Queen's DSA. Good evening. Thanks so much for speaking with us on Revolutions Per Minute. Of course. Thank you. So I understand that you have a deep knowledge of the farmer protests that are happening right now in India, and we were hoping that you could give our Revolutions Per Minute audience a little bit of an overview of what the landscape there looks like and what these protests are about. Yeah, so a lot of the protests are originating from the Punjab region in northern India. Punjab is a small state in India. It's about 1% of the land, 1% of the population, but they are a major agricultural producer for the rest of the country, producing about a quarter of India's rice and about 40% of India's grain. So a lot of Indians are fed because of Punjabi farmers and are ensured that you know the grain supply and whatever kind of uh, export is done of grains is because of Punjabi farmers. In this past year, the Modi government, which is a right-wing, very fascist government that has come into place, is passed a number of bills, three bills to be exact, which deregulate the farming economy. 
So prior to the bills, like many other neo-colonial countries, um, post-colonial countries, India had a market system called the Mundi system, where a minimum support price was guaranteed for certain agricultural crops like rice, like wheat, and other sorts of crops. This way, farmers knew exactly how much money they were going to get from selling their crops. Um, Farming is very capital intensive in the beginning, right? You have to take out loans to buy the seeds, to buy the fertilizer, to buy um, soil and things along those lines. So it's important to know how much you're going to get in at the end of the day. Um, If the price for tomatoes, for example, drops 10 cents per tomato, that could be a huge pitfall for farmers. So having that minimum support price is very important. These bills look to deregulate that. So the first thing it does is removes these government markets, the mundis, where the minimum support price is placed, and instead also instill private mundis or private markets, which there won't be any minimum support price, which won't be taxed. So it also takes away a large amount of kind of taxable income that the state will be able to get, but also throws discord into knowing how much farmers are going to be able to get for the crops that they're selling. Um, The other thing this does is only allows any sort of dispute that happens between the private mundies and the farmers to go through state courts, which are already packed and aren't able to take on these cases. These first two things together really don't bode well for the farmers. We're already seeing large companies like Ambani, who is one of the richest men in the world, coming into Punjab, starting to buy land to build warehouses, to build these private markets. If Ambani, with their giant multi-billion rupee legal team, is able to finesse their way out of any legal situation, and again, it doesn't bode well for the farmers who may not have that legal support, may not have that legal team, to be able to argue around contracts and things along those lines. The other thing it allows large corporations to do is, in time, have control over these private markets where they'll be able to price fix, monopolies will start being created, so it will erase whatever minimum support price is available for people, and allow the companies or the private corporations to dictate how much the goods are sold for. Um, These private corporations are often the ones that are supplying loans to the farmers to begin with, and those loans are often backed by farmers' land as collateral. So if a farmer takes out a loan from Ambani Corporation to do their farming, to grow their crops, and then has to sell it back to the Ambani Corporation, they decide to lower the price of how much they're going to buy it for, the farmer is not able to meet their loan, the Embani Corporation is going to be able to take their land away and use it for their own corporate farming purposes or create these larger farming um, cooperations and things along those lines, which is dangerous to farmers. And this is what farmers are seeing as a threat to them and is the reason they're going in such large numbers to the capital of Delhi to protest. There's also an issue around here of land sovereignty and how minorities, such as Sikhs who make up a large percent of Punjab, have been viewed by the Indian government for a long time. This is not too different than what happened in the United States in the 70s under the Nixon administration, where we saw large scales of deregulation. And whereas in the early 1900s, about a quarter of Americans, one out of every four were farmers, now it's less than 2%. These neoliberal capitalist policies around deregulation, austerity measures, so on and so forth, have never been helpful 
or supportive of the working class, as we know, and they've only been supportive of large-scale corporations. And that's not a feature we want to see for Punjab or India. Absolutely. And uh, on a human scale, this is a, a huge story, and it's one that I think is not well understood from a, a leftist or worker advocate perspective here in the United States. So thank you so much, Jagpreet, for coming on to speak to us briefly. Uh, we really appreciate you contributing your knowledge. Thank you, Amy. Thanks to our live guest, David Dualte, and all of our stories this week. We'll be on next week at the same time, Wednesday at 9 p.m. Until then, I hope to see you at the new member orientation on Saturday. Bye, everyone.